Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, cardio nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Welcome to an incredible case brought to us for the very first time by our colleagues from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We learn from co-fellows Dr. Rayan Rachwan, Anupama Joseph, and Mohamed Marchant, as well as the expert for this case, Dr. Ford Ballantyne III. With this episode, we would like to give a very warm welcome to the University of Wisconsin-Madison Cardiology Fellowship Training Program to the CardioNerds Healy Honor Roll. What does it mean to be a CardioNerds Fellowship? Well, these are programs dedicated to supporting our mission to democratize cardiovascular education by producing content, as well as nominating an ambassador, fellow, and training to the CardioNerds to join our family and be a leader in digital medical education within cardiovascular medicine. With that, we'd like to welcome Dr. Ryan Rachwan as the ambassador from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Please remember that CardioNerds is an independent fellow-founded platform with the goal to democratize cardiovascular education. You can support the mission by subscribing to and rating the show, donating via Patreon, getting CardioNerds swag on Teespring, and sharing your love for cardiology on social media. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. You might be wondering about this choice of music. It departs from our normal background music. But just to give you an idea of how talented Ryan is, in addition to saving lives as a cardiology fellow by day, he is a musician and composer by night. And so this music is from an album he is creating. It was composed by Ryan himself, so we hope you all enjoy it. We certainly did. Hey, Cardio Nerds, join us for a trip to Madison, Wisconsin, where we get to learn from University of Wisconsin Cardiology Fellows. With us, we have today Drs. Rayan Rachwan, Anupama Joseph, and Mohamed Marchand. Guys, welcome to the show. So excited to have you here. Without further ado, can you all introduce yourselves? Hey, Amit and Daniel. Thank you for having us. So this is Rayan. I'm a first-year cardiology fellow at UW-Madison. I was born and raised in Lebanon. I did my undergrad and med school at the American University of Beirut. Then I moved to the U.S. to Indiana University to complete my three years of internal medicine. And then afterwards, I came here for general cardiology. I'm mostly interested in interventional cardiology. And outside of medicine, I published composer, music composer. I also am a guitarist. I like sports like basketball and uh, martial arts. I love hiking, biking, exploring new places. I've got to ask you, would you be willing to share a clip of your composing slash guitaring with us? Yeah. Send me a clip. And for the audience, what we'll do is we'll patch it toward the episode so we can yeah. celebrate your talents. All right. That'd be amazing. Thank you. All right. Okay. Hi, guys. I'm Mohammed Merchant. I'm originally from Florida. I'm currently a PGY6 third-year cardiology fellow. I have done my training. I started at University of Miami for med school and then moved to Emory University for internal medicine. 
and I'm completing my cardiology fellowship in a few months and we'll be moving to the Bay Area, to Stanford, to do a critical care year to complete my training. Interests outside of cardiology include sports and spending time with family. Hey everyone, I'm Anupama Joseph. I'm one of the second year cardiology fellows here. I'm from the Cincinnati, Ohio area. I did my medical school at Ohio State. I did my internal medicine residency at the University of Chicago, and then I came here. My plan is to go into non-invasive cardiology after I finish. Interests outside of medicine include being a professional foodie and a very amateur power lifter. Mohammed, Anupama, and Rayan. Wow, it is so nice to meet you and really, really nice to be in Madison, where we could talk about medicine in Wisconsin. Did you do ching? I'm really excited to be here. And besides for the fact that Fargo <laughs> Oh gosh. Fargo is one of the greatest movies and TV shows of all time. But we'd love to see your city. Why don't you take us to one of your favorite places so we can sit down and set the scene as we start talking about cardiology? No, so so Madison, Wisconsin likes to forget that there are seasons. So even though it's officially spring, it's still rainy and cold outside. But one of my favorite places to go, I don't know about you guys, is the Union Terrace, which is over on the undergrad campus. You get a beautiful view of one of the lakes. We have four of them in Madison. And just being outside in the summer, having an ice cream or beer, whatever you're privy to, that's where we'll pretend we are right now. (laughs) Ice cream or beer? Why not both? What kind of world are we living in here? Or or a beer float. (laughs) (laughs) So... So listen, I've lived an incredibly fulfilling life, and I have very few regrets. My one regret... Sounds like Frank Sinatra. He did it on its way. (laughs) No, no, but, but, but this is very serious. This is very serious, okay? So I want you to hear me out. My one regret is my cousin, uh, he got married when I was in residency. He got everyone together for his bachelor's party. It was really a bachelor's like weekend. And I believe it was Madison, Wisconsin. And the whole weekend was just like a booze cruise, going bar hopping and having a good time. And I couldn't go because I was in residency, but I saw pictures. It just seemed like such an, an incredibly fun, good time to spend with a bunch of people. So why don't we go and enjoy the beer float? Was that the suggestion? <laughs> Put some ice here. And then as, a, as the sun is setting, maybe we can catch a cruise. Would that be okay? Just so that let's do it. I feel fulfilled in life. <laughs> sounds like a plan. That sounds sounds like a plan. Wood and lake, that's what life is all about. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I'm down. I'm coming. So let's uh, let's talk about a case. Huh? What do you guys have for us? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a a really interesting case of a 26-year-old gentleman. He has a really complex congenital heart disease history, including uh, bicuspid aortic valve. He has Schoen syndrome or Schoen complex, and his manifestations included subaortic stenosis, coarctation of the aorta, as well as aortic valve stenosis. In terms of his surgical repairs, he had a prior coarctation repair at three weeks of age, he had resection of his subaortic membrane at about a year of age. He had a Roscono operation in 2008 with a 20 millimeter pulmonary homograft. And then he had a Melody valve implanted into his conduit and that was dilated to 22 millimeters. That was back in 2015. He interestingly, sort of his most recent congenital history, uh, he had a routine chest x-ray done and it was found that his Melody valve was fractured in multiple places. 
He did have a TTE that recently, this is about a couple months prior to presentation, showed normal RV function and pretty minimal tricuspid regurgitation. So he was planned for an elective repair of transcatheter pulmonary valve repair as an outpatient, which was postponed due to the COVID pandemic. I can't wait to hear what he's coming in at this point for. That is the issue at hand. But we just went over a lot of complex anatomy and a lot of eponyms, Shones, Ross, Kono. Would this be a good time to teach about what all that means, just to help us contextualize what's going on in this person's heart at this point? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the biggest focuses for all of us was that congenital heart disease is still sort of a black box. So maybe Ryan, if you could tell us a little bit about Schoen syndrome and how it manifests. Sure. So Schoen syndrome is a rare congenital abnormality that counts for 0.6% of all congenital abnormalities. It comes in two forms, a complete form and a partial form. So in the complete form, it's characterized by a complex of four obstructive lesions of the left heart. First is supravalvular mitral valve. Second is parachute mitral valve. Three is muscular or membranous subvalvular aortic stenosis. And four is the correctation of the aorta. The partial form consists of two or three of the four lesions. Frequently, the correctation of the aorta is recognized before the other defects. And the correctation may mask the effect of the other lesion. And in some patients with Shunt syndrome, they're only diagnosed when symptoms persist after the correctation surgery is done. That's so interesting. So essentially, it's a, it's a complex of multiple left-sided obstructive lesions. And it's like having multiple resistors in series. And so the total resistance is just essentially a summation of all their resistors. And, and so in this context, if somebody has a predominant coarctation, it can almost mask the obstructions for the earlier obstructive lesions. So then may I ask, if this is a left-sided predominant problem with serial lesions, why did he need a melody valve? And why did he have things done to the pulmonic valve? So that comes along with the Roscoe operation that he got. So the Roscoe operation is a complex procedure for severe or mitral-level sub or aortic stenosis. So it consists of removing the pulmonary valve of the patient and using it as the new aortic valve and also opening up the narrowed left ventricular outflow tract. At the same time, in order to fill the gap on the right side, there's a conduit that is placed and has a valve inside. Right. So when we think about just in general, what do you do with an isolated aortic stenosis in a woman of childbearing age? The ROS procedure is something that comes up, right? Because it's an opportunity to replace an aortic valve without the need for a mechanical prosthesis. You're using the pulmonary autograft, right? You're using the patient's own pulmonary valve in the aortic position. But in some ways, it's almost like replacing one valvular problem with two valvular problems. And so in this setting, it sounds like the patient had a ross Connor procedure, had problems with the pulmonary valve position prosthesis. And in that place, it was treated with a percutaneous malady valve. Yep, that is correct. And I mean, the Roscona has few advantages that includes the capability of the autograft to grow with the child and also the durability of the autograft without development of aortic stenosis or aortic insufficiency. But on the other hand, there's a disadvantage that is the need for reoperation for the right ventricle to pulmonary artery conduit and possible dilation of the autograft root, which is the case that we saw in that patient here. Yeah, I think the key is that it's done in the capable hands of an experienced operator because there are several advantages, like you outlined. It can it grows with the patient. Another one is that the, the hemodynamics are also superior, right? If you imagine a stented prosthetic valve in the aortic position, the annulus is it doesn't have a normal hemodynamic profile. It can't expand with systole and contract and have its own recoil. 
Whereas with the, the pulmonary autograft with the ROS procedure, it maintains that intrinsic hemodynamic profile of, I guess, a normal valve. So there are a lot of benefits, but clearly downsides that, we're, um, that are beginning to already unfold in our case here. So now, at least I have a better appreciation for what this gentleman, 26 years old, right? I mean, I, I remember what I was doing when I was 26 years old. What were you guys doing when you were 26 years old? I was studying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Not on a booze cruise. Okay. <laughs> so, but, you know, but, but this guy, his first 26 years of life were different from our first 26 years of life. He's dealt with this complex congenital heart disease since he was born, had multiple procedures, and now he's dealing with the consequences of both his initial congenital anatomic issues and then also the deterioration and wear and tear of the, the surgical repairs and replacements. So, now I get it. Now I get it. What's he coming in with now, Anipama? Yeah, absolutely. So he's coming in to the emergency room at this point with actually three months of symptoms. He's had progressive dyspnea is sort of his biggest complaint, but he's also had another constellation of symptoms, including fevers, night sweats, chills, myalgias, cough, and diarrhea. Interestingly, he was actually seen in an urgent care about a month before he came in. He was actually treated for presumed acute bronchitis with azithromycin. He had a sort of temporary improvement in his symptoms, but once his ZPAC was over, he his symptoms kind of came back with a vengeance and progressed. In terms of his other medical history, besides the medical and surgical history I talked about, he's not on very many medications. He just takes a daily aspirin and albuterol as needed. He doesn't have any significant family history. He's fortunately a former tobacco user, uh, and he does use marijuana. So I think at this point, we've talked about Jones syndrome, we've talked about the Roscona operation, and we have a very general sense of the symptoms that he's coming in with, sort of progressive three months of symptoms. Mohammed, knowing what you do about his background, his medical history, his surgical history, what's going through your mind initially in terms of a differential and what's your thought process? Right. So essentially, we have a 26-year-old guy with pretty extensive past medical history, including the Schoen complex with the coarctation of his aorta, which was repaired at a young age, as well as this Ross-Cono procedure. And unfortunately, he developed a pulmonic stenosis requiring this melody valve about five to six years ago. But now he's coming in with a fractured stent. He's had some evaluation, but fortunately, his RV is okay from what we can tell. And they thought because of COVID, let's push it back a little bit. But now he's coming in with three months of fevers, chills, muscle aches, and shortness of breath seems to be his main complaint. So the two things that kind of quickly run through my head are, first, is this just COVID? Most COVID times, does he have a case of COVID? I think it's probably less likely, three months. Uh, he's a young guy, although his medical history is not young. But that's something to keep on differential, I think. Given everything that's going on, he's got this fractured stent. Could this be endocarditis? He did have three months of fevers. He's got this nidus for infection. And it seems like he got better with a short ZPAC. Could we be dealing with some sort of strep species, which has some sort of coverage with that ZPAC? So I think at, at this point, those would be my first two kind of thoughts. But not to narrow it too quickly, I think you have to think about other stuff, something like myocarditis, something that's all it can have infectious symptoms, but also have heart failure-like symptoms. Again, the three-month timeline kind of makes that less likely as well. Some other things, could he have HIV and a opneustic infection that hasn't been diagnosed yet? Could this be some sort of indolent rheumatological process? But again, nothing in our history that would suggest that. His, his, his history otherwise from his cardiac standpoint is pretty negative. There's some tobacco and marijuana use, but nothing to suggest 
that he's at risk for some other disease processes. So at this point, I think we need to get some some vitals, a good physical exam that's going to tell us how the valve sounds, how is RV is working, can we feel a lift on exam, does he have right-sided fluid, right-sided failure, is he cold or is he warm, that, that was kind of tease things out. And some basic labs, an x-ray, an EKG, start from there. And we probably need an echo, but we'll see what the initial testing kind of shows us. I think that's my initial initial thought process if I saw him in the ED. You know, you're always going to make a cardiac nerd happy when you talk about echoes. But I agree with you. I'm thinking this patient has fevers, sweats, chills, body aches. And that, in my mind, those are constitutional symptoms, right? And it suggests some sort of inflammatory issue like you outlined. So is that syndrome? Is it infectious? Is it autoimmune? Is it malignancy? Could it be some sort of like allergic trigger? And then in terms of localizing it, there are a few localizing symptoms, right? And so the shortness of breath, say, maybe it's not localizing because fever itself can give you the perception of shortness of breath, but shortness of breath, dyspnea, we think, is it cardiac? Is it pulmonary? Is it hematologic with anemia? The cough may may be a, a little bit more localizing to the lungs in that context. The diarrhea, I think, is probably not very localizing. Like certainly it could point to the GI tract, but it can also be sort of a nonspecific constitutional sign here. So I agree. I think this is very broad right now. Love to get more information. Absolutely. So that's exactly what they did. Did a set of vitals as well as a full physical exam. So he was a febrile on presentation to the emergency room. He was mildly tachycardic at 104 beats per minute. Unfortunately, despite multiple attempts using both a manual and an automatic blood pressure cuff, they were not able to obtain a blood pressure. So they emergently placed in a femoral arterial line and empirically started a norepinephrine drip just to obtain a blood pressure on this gentleman. His respiratory rate initially on presentation was he was tachypnic in the low 30s, and his SATs were 84% on presentation and was initiated initially on uh, 15 liters non-rebreather and rapidly escalated to BiPAP support. So on exam, he was surprisingly alert and oriented despite not being able to get a blood pressure. He was noted to be in moderate respiratory distress with shallow respirations. The jugular venous dissension wasn't measured, but was noted to be severe. On cardiac auscultation, he was noted to be tachycardic, but did appear regular. He did have an impressive grade five out of six high-pitched holosystolic murmur that was heard throughout the precordium. He did have a palpable thrill and an RV heave described. His lungs were clear to auscultation. His abdomen was soft. It was diffusely tender to palpation. His extremities were warm without any significant peripheral edema, and his distal pulses in his feet were noted to be three plus bounding. So I, I don't have anything to add, but Anubama, I just have a reaction to this. We learned very early on in training to be able to differentiate sick versus not sick, right? I mean, the, the skill to triage a patient is so fundamental. And clearly this guy is really sick and it doesn't match for me the history, right? The history was a subacute three month long illness that maybe has been progressive. But the moment that he comes to the door, he's hypoxic, hypotensive, and there's several things that are raising a lot of red flags here. So it just goes to show you, I think, right? Like young people have such a incredible physiologic reserve. They can be like, okay, 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 with subtle findings until they're suddenly not okay and are crashing. But so this is really surprising because the history is three months, but he's very acutely ill. What did you guys find on labs? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was going to say, if you thought the vitals and exam were bad, he was someone where we looked at the labs and we're like, there's literally not, not a single normal lab in this gentleman. 
So we obtained labs in the emergency room. His BMP, his sodium was 127. He had a potassium of 6.3. His bicarb was less than 5. His BUN was 43 with a creatinine of 2.9. His AST and ALT were in the 4,000s and 2,000s, respectively. And then in terms of his CBC, he had an incredibly impressive white count of 66,000. He had a mild anemia of 10.6, and he had platelets of 89. He did have an elevated INR of 3.4, an elevated D-dimer greater than 20, a low fibrinogen at 81, a lactate of 19, a troponin I of 0.07, a pro-BNP of 1,108. I'm like blown away and speechless, guys. What the heck is going on? I mean, like... Incompatible with life, right? <laughs> incompatible with life. But so do we have a differential on the white count, maybe even a smear, right? I mean, could this be like a like a ALL or AML crisis? Just like his white count is 66, you said? Yeah. So it was more of a true left shift with very high neutrophils. So, okay. So it sounds like this is probably a leukemoid reaction. We should track along the inflammatory prodrome of symptoms to suggest that this is like infectious mediated, right? So what's going on? How do you how do you put all these labs together in this context? Yeah, just just to piggyback off of that, we had these constitutional symptoms and basically we have a patient that's coming in with what sounds like a an infection and we know this is a patient that's got hardware, that's got abnormal anatomy at risk for having infection in the heart, but comes in with like real, real hemodynamic compromise. Obviously, this is like yelling sepsis, the leukemoid reaction. We're potentially seeing labs of severe hypoperfusion, a lactate of 19. We have fibrinogen 81 associated with a thrombocytopenia. So we potentially have a DIC picture going on. But we also have the possibility of this being a mixed cardiogenic shock as well, given his anatomy. So really interesting presentation, really worrisome presentation. I'm really interested to see how you tease this out to identify the predominant insult, whether it's from a sepsis picture, low SVR state, or we're also having a cardiogenic component. You know, in terms of the remainder of the emergency room workup, simultaneously as his labs came back, they also got a chest x-ray. There wasn't any acute pulmonary pathology. He had a stably enlarged cardiac silhouette, but no pleural effusion, no pneumothorax. He had sort of stable fractures of his melody valve, as were seen previously. So he had an ECG done that showed sinus tachycardia, an extreme northwest axis, a right bundle branch block, and poor R-wave progression throughout the precordium. How did this EKG compare to the patient's baseline EKG? This was his first time at the hospital, so I don't think we had a baseline ECG for him, unfortunately. Gotcha. Thanks. Obviously, there's a lot going on with this gentleman, as you guys had summarized, from his vitals and exam to his laboratory derangements. He's obviously someone who's coming in really sick, and we still have a pretty broad differential at this point. Mohammed, how would you approach this patient from here now, kind of knowing his presentation and some of his basic studies? Yeah. So to quickly summarize, again, a 26-year-old with complex Schoen's disease with multiple surgeries, coming in with three weeks of fevers, chills, muscle aches, with symptoms of shortness of breath, cough, and some GI pain, some diarrhea. He's clearly in shock when he presents to the ED, even though this has been going on for three months, as well as hypoxic respiratory failure, initially requiring non-rebreather, but having been switched over to BiPAP due to respiratory distress. On exam, he's in clear distress, not comfortable at all. 
He assigns a right-sided volume overload with LVA-JVP, as well as probable RV dysfunction with a heave, a thrill, and a very loud systolic murmur, which we can probably assume is from that pulmonic melody valve. His labs show that he's in a shock state. His, he's got this hepatocellular injury pattern. He's got an AKI. And then he also has a very high white count with leukocytosis, a 66,000 leukomoid reaction, as well as DIC with the high D-dimer INR elevation, as well as the low fibrinogen. On the surface, I think this screams septic shock, you know, with that white count, he's warm to touch on exam, at least subjectively. He's had these fevers, sounds like constitutional symptoms. Uh, but I think when you look at some of the stuff, stuff more closely, I think you, you do see that this probably cardiogenic component. The exam findings with the pulmonic valve sounds like stenotic valve. You have the right-sided heave, elevated JVP. And then the ECG also shows this really rightward northwest axis, as well as this right bundle branch, which just kind of shows you the right heart's not happy, it's probably enlarged. Um, I think when you put it all together with this guy's past medical history, as well as his presentation, I think you start to see that he's probably got a, a mixed shock, both septic as well as cardiogenic uh, right-sided shock. So I think we go back to that diagnosis we talked about earlier, where could this guy have a a, not only stenotic valve, but also superimposed endocarditis on top of this pulmonic valve. And is that what we're seeing? So I think we've done all the basic workup. I think it's time for some some good stuff. We need, we need an echo, I think. And I think we want to look at the pulmonic valve. We want to see what the gradients are through the valve, as well as what, side, what are the right-sided pressures. We can see if there's a good tricuspid regurgitation jet, which will allow us to estimate a right-sided pressure, see how the RV looks, see what the left side is doing um, as well. But I think we're mostly concerned with the right side and that pulmonic valve. So ask and you shall receive. He did have an echocardiogram done. He was noted to have a small LV with normal systolic function. His RV was severely enlarged with severely reduced function. Remember, two months ago, he had a normal RV with normal function. His estimated RV systolic pressure is the highest I think I've ever seen on an echo, which is 146 millimeters of mercury. His melody valve flow velocities were significantly increased, consistent with severe pulmonic valve stenosis with a peak velocity of four meters per second and a mean gradient of 45 millimeters of mercury. And he had sort of torrential wide open tricuspid regurgitation on his echo. All of these were new findings from two months ago. So... When he was down in the emergency room after the echocardiogram, knowing that he had new severe RV dysfunction, trying to piece together what tied together his constitutional symptoms as well as his new significant RV failure and severe pulmonic stenosis. He also underwent a CTPE as well as a CT abdomen pelvis to assess for other indolent sources of infection as well as potentially malignancy. His CTPE was really interesting and showed his melody valve with a large thrombus arising from the mid to distal valve that extended into the main pulmonary artery as well as into the proximal left pulmonary artery. And there was noted to be a tiny focus of air. They mentioned contrast injection and infection being possible etiologies of that focus of air. And then, of course, evidence of right-sided chamber enlargement as well. 
Guys, I just have to say, I'm like totally blown away by these images, right? And they're so helpful here. There are a lot of things going on clearly for this patient. On the one hand, you're just trying to save his life, support him hemodynamically, support his, his respiratory status. He's in hypoxic failure. But you're also trying to figure out what's going on. So the images here really speak volumes. We've identified from the CT that he's got a thrombosed malady valve, and we get both structural and hemodynamic parameters from the echo that show that there is monstrous right-sided pressures, right? Monstrous. And so that kind of, I think, in my mind, tells you that this RV is one that's capable of generating these high pressures. And so it's probably conditioned over some period of time to, to be able to adapt to this increased afterload, right? So probably this like valve stenosis and thrombosis was something that maybe was evolving over time, right? But at the same time, clearly this RV is not happy, right? It's like big, it's blown out, and it's completely pushing against that LV. I mean, this is not systolic septal flattening. I mean, the septum is completely, you know, it's like essentially like convex going into the LV. And so you can imagine why this patient is so hypotensive, right? The RV is doing its absolute best to generate these high right set of pressures, but the LV is just squeezed shut almost with the inability to accept the preload and fill during diastole. And so the forward stroke volume for the systemic circuit is going to be very low, right? So, I mean, this is essentially like interventricular dependence because the RV is so blown out. Also, the another part of the physiology here is just a, like a poor fulfilling of the LV, not just because of the RV bowing, but just the obstructive physiology, like what you have with PE, is really impressive. Definitely. So, the, I mean, I think there's a lot of things going on here, but I think what I'm taking away is that there was a stenotic valve problem that was evolving over time that's conditioned the RV to be able to generate high pressures, and then on top of that, you have this indolent subacute endocarditis that's probably not staph aureus, right? It's probably something that's been brewing over time that's caused an infection, which, you know, is a feed forward mechanism for more thrombosis, more infection, and essentially feeds itself until you have a patient that is this sick in front of you. So uh, you've got my attention, all right? Uh, I'm putting my beer float down and I'm trying, I'm trying to figure out what's the next step here. What did you guys do? So in terms of the next steps in this gentleman's care, Obviously, there was concern for mixed septic and obstructive shock from this infected thrombus uh, involving the melody valve. We knew this was a structural problem that needed a structural solution. They thought he was too unstable to undergo surgery, which would be the eventual permanent solution. But in the sense of kind of talking after the multidisciplinary approach, going through a transcatheter-based approach with some of our experienced interventional cardiologists who have experience in both the adult and pediatric populations. The decision was made to take him emergently to the cath lab for a transcatheter-based intervention. So when he was in the cath lab, they sort of anticipated the need that he would need to be on full mechanical support because obviously, as you can imagine, kind of crossing through a totally obstructed melody valve could cause rapid deterioration in hemodynamics. So essentially before they induced him with anesthesia, they had already obtained venous and arterial access in the groin. When he was induced with anesthesia, he actually became quickly quite hypoxic and had hemodynamically significant bradycardia and required emergent cannulation onto VA ECMO at that point. And at that point, they performed a right heart catheterization and crossed that obstructed melody valve and performed a balloon dilation and stent placement in that melody valve. 
Yeah, I'm not surprised that in induction with anesthetic agents really took out this gentleman's ability to perfuse blood across his circuit. I mean, if you think about it, that right ventricle, and as Ahmed pointed out, maybe had been developing some strength over time because we're generating just like massive, ridiculously high pressures. So to imagine that this right ventricle was suddenly able to do that, that's like me going to the gym right now and just like lifting a ton of weights, not going to happen. So obviously it was developing over time, but at the same time, the gradient across that pulmonic valve was really, really significant, right? And so that that gradient was necessary to get blood flow from the RV across the melody valve into the pulmonary circuit to get back to the LV, to get back into the systemic circulation to generate a blood pressure. And that was with already pressors, as we had talked about earlier. So as soon as you take away that right ventricular you know, oomph, as you will, you really you're basically tying this gentleman's hands behind his back. So it's no wonder that this patient ended up developing circulatory collapse, requiring emergent ECMO uh, support, full support, biventricular support, and really bypassing this entire system or this entire mess so we can basically get him to another day and take him forward in his clinical course and maybe save his life. And so I really appreciated how you had thought this out before even approaching the melody valve and recognize that this may be a consequence of what's going to be happening and prepared the patient accordingly. So definitely really appreciate that foresight. Yeah, I agree, Dan. There's so many interesting interactions at play, right? Because you have the potential cardio-inhibitory effects of anesthesia. You also attenuate and decrease like the adrenergic drive, the sympathetic drive that's keeping up the patient's like SVR. And at the same time, you put the patient on mechanical ventilation with, after you intubate them, yeah, the positive pressure is going to further increase the afterload that the RV is seeing, right? All that put together. And that's just the getting the patient on a ventilator. On the other hand, who knows what's going to happen when you thread a wire and put catheters across that valve that's thrombosed? Like, is it going to embolize? Is your balloon dilated open? The valve is already fractured. Could could you go from stenosis to acute regurgitation? There are so many unknowns. And this whole situation is so uncomfortable. Time is of the essence. You've got a young life at risk. So really applaud the team for not only thinking through the hemodynamics and the structural intervention, but also the contingencies. You you had your multidisciplinary team, you had ECMO ready to go, but how did the patient do? Yeah. So in terms of the procedure itself, post-procedurally, they did do a pulmonary angiogram, which showed no evidence of distal embolization or significant pulmonary embolism and no structural complications, i.e. no perforation. There was residual moderate pulmonary insufficiency angiographically after the procedure. And then just to give you a sense of the hemodynamics, which we've been talking quite a lot about in this case, they did do sort of a limited right heart cath, both pre and post procedure. His RV pressure was initially 110 over 21 millimeters of mercury pre-procedure, and that decreased to 64 over 20 millimeters of mercury. His measured PA pressure was initially 37 over 22 millimeters of mercury with a mean of 29 and improved to 55 over 19, which we always think about the narrow pulse pressure of any chamber and kind of seeing the improvement in that was really great to see. And then his RV to PA conduit gradient was less than 10 millimeters of mercury post-intervention, which is suggestive of minimal residual stenosis. That's incredible, right? Because one, the elephant in the room is that your stenotic gradients are markedly improved, right? This RV 
that was having a hard time keeping up with these this substantial afterload of this thrombos valve has less to deal with. But but one thing that catches my eye is that at least angiographically there was what we said was moderate pulmonary regurgitation, but the RVEDP didn't really change. It went from 21 to 20, right? So thankfully, at least hemodynamically, it's not a significant pulmonary regurgitation. So great for the patient. We don't really have to factor that in too much. Obviously, this is with uh, VA ECMO, and and so you have less flow going through the right side. And so we keep that in our minds, but amazing result. Definitely. Yeah. And I'd just like to draw everyone's minds to the webpage, obviously, if you're not driving, because uh, these images are absolutely fantastic. You have to see them. Uh, for a few reasons. One is you could see the miraculous work of this great team, but also you can also appreciate a lot of things anatomically, particularly if you're not necessarily used to looking at these films, you could appreciate where the melody valve sits. And so understanding where the PA sits in the chest, you could also see the flow of blood as you see the angiogram, the contrast through the pulmonic arteries system, and then go back into the venous system and end up going into the left-sided structures. So definitely check these out. They'll be on the website for you to review. And can I ask, Anupama, the pre-pressures and the post-pressures, are they both on VA ECMO? Yes, uh, those were both on VA ECMO support. Yeah, that's amazing. Very cool. Okay. So, Amit, what makes that, what makes that particularly cool? What were you getting at? Pressure is directly related to your flow, right? And so if you have VA ECMO and you have a venous inflow cannula that's diverting all of your venous return into the ECMO circuit and it's not going to the right side, then naturally you're going to have decreased pressures. So I was just making sure that Anupama is not cheating here. I'm not cheating. (laughs) (laughs) So truly incredible structural result here. I think the RV doesn't get enough credit. Um, I think it has this natural uh, RV elastance. It has the ability to recover, especially in young patients. That once you kind of put that RVPA coupling back in order, it has this market uh, recovery. And it's not going to happen in a second, but in a few days, hopefully this guy will be able to get off the ECMO. Very resilient. That's a great point. Kind of like uh, Captain America. Like weak <laughs> at first, but very resilient. Gets injected <laughs> with a few things. <laughs> okay, anyways. <laughs> Isn't great right. enough? <laughs> yeah, that's, actually, that's good. I'm going to start calling him Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> Captain America. Never gives up. Really. Okay, anyways, <laughs> let's not digress too far. You know, we're, we, we can take a sigh of relief for the high-stress moments are hopefully, for the most part, behind us. We can start joking around a little bit, but, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. The guys on VA ECMO, there's some degree of PR. We still have multi-organ failure. How do the next few days look like for this gentleman? Yeah, so... Fortunately, as a young patient with, as Mohammed pointed out, the ability for his RV to hopefully quickly recover, he, he did. He did as well as one could hope. He was empirically started on antibiotics and his blood cultures actually eventually grew out Jamella homolysans. So at this point, he was on VA ECMO support, but was quickly being moved towards decannulation, which happened two days after this procedure. He was on a little bit of milrinone, I think 0.375 mics per kilo per minute, as well as norepinephrine and vasopressin, which were subsequently weaned off very quickly as well. And then the day following his ECMO decannulation, he was extubated to room air. He, of course, with his multi-organ system failure, as you pointed out, he did have an acute kidney injury that temporarily required uh, CVVH. But he had urine output throughout his time on dialysis and recovered his renal function, didn't require dialysis at discharge. 
his shock liver improved, his DIC improved, and then his ultimate end goal was obviously to get him to surgery because, again, that balloon dilation and stenting was a temporary procedure to stabilize him. So about two to three weeks into his hospital course, he had a reduced sternotomy with our cardiac surgery team. They resected his infected pulmonary homograft, all of his stents, and then replaced it with a 26 millimeter homograft. And then he was discharged on a prolonged course of antibiotics. So glad the patient was able to be weaned off ECMO in, in two days. And, but he still had to have a huge surgery and he wasn't out of the woods. But luckily, the surgery went very well. And he had to have the surgery because he still had a lot of prosthetic device that had all this smushed up thrombus and infection after the stent and balloon. So, of course, that was only a temporary solution. The, the surgery was, was the end game. But guys, I mean, this is absolutely remarkable. I mean, talk about Lazarus, right? I mean, this guy was on the brink of death when you brought him back, you know, through a series of maneuvers that are off guidelines, not typical. Definitely don't do this at home without a skilled multidisciplinary team. But congratulations for taking such valiant and incredible exemplary care of this patient. Amit, I cannot agree more. So here we have this crazy case of a mixed shock secondary to severe RV outflow tract obstruction with this bug that I've never, ever heard about, Gamella hemophilans endocarditis. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Ryan, I know that you know so much about this bug and entity. Would you mind sharing us some insights, what this entity is and what it does, and when should we think, be thinking about it? Yeah, I could share the three lines I know about it. So, so it's really a first time I heard about it as well. It's a gram-positive coxoid catalase negative facultative anaerobic microorganism of the mucous membrane found in humans. It's able to cause severe and generalized infection as an opportunistic pathogen and has become an emerging bacterial etiology and infective endocarditis. Generally, Gemella endocarditis is associated with previous valvular damage or poor dental state. Well, Jamela, that's certainly a first for me. You know, what I'm struck by in this case, um, you know, we're planning this extensive adult congenital heart disease series. And in planning those episodes, we're thinking for all of these things, like what is the childhood pediatric manifestation and what are the adult manifestations? And even after correction, right, is a structural problem, but even after structural correction, they live with all of these long-term sequelae and consequences, right? Whether it's heart failure, a structural residual problem, electrophysiologic problems, like extra cardiac issues, lifelong sequelae that we really need to be attuned to because we will take care of these patients. So I think to better understand how did this patient get here, I think we really do need to better understand Sean's complex. So Ryan, would you mind just walking us through what, what you've learned in taking care of this patient? Sure. So Shunt syndrome manifests usually with symptoms of congestive heart failure, which can occur as early as the first week of life, including fatigue, tachypnea, tachycardia, poor oral intake, poor weight gain, fluid retention with edema in the legs, pallor from anemia, and frequent infection, mostly pneumonias. And the severity of the symptom depends largely on how much obstruction of blood flow through the mitral valve into the left ventricle is caused by the mitral stenosis that the patient has. So the next question is, how is Shunt syndrome diagnosed? And it's diagnosed mostly with an echocardiogram, which is the most widely available modality and can identify adequately each of the syndrome component. An alternative modality would be the cardiac MR. 
the way Shunt syndrome is treated is really by addressing each of the constituent defect that the patient has. So if the patient has coarctation of the aorta, then that's treated surgically with excision with end-to-end anastomosis or subclavian FAP angioplasty. Alternatively, it could be treated with transcatheter balloon angioplasty, particularly in the case of free coarctation after the surgical repair has been done. If the patient has a subaortic stenosis, then that could be treated surgically by excising the excess tissue below the aortic valve with a septal myomectomy. If other forms of aortic stenosis are present, then surgical repair may involve the replacement of the aortic valve. In patients with mitral stenosis, which is caused by either the parachute mitral valve or by supravalvular mitral membrane, then that's treated surgically with either valve replacement or valve repair. Regarding the long-term prognosis of the patients with Shunt syndrome, it's really difficult to predict and depends mostly on the extent of the mitral valve disease, the degree of which the left ventricle is hypoplastic, and the cumulative effect of surgical treatment over time. Moreover, it's Important to note that the patient who develop pulmonary arterial hypertension have a more dismal prognosis. So a good outcome is still possible in patients with Chance syndrome, provided that the surgical intervention is undertaken early before the onset of pulmonary arterial hypertension. Regarding how to follow up these patients, so in regards to right ventricular assessment, then echocardiography provides a very useful diagnostic information in many clinical circumstances that affect the right heart. However, when precise quantitative data is required to make important clinical decisions, for example, when to recommend a pulmonary valve replacement, then cardiac MR remains the diagnostic modality of choice. So repairing or replacing the pulmonary valve should be strongly considered when the right ventricle and diastolic volume is more than 160 milliliter per meter square and or the right ventricle and systolic volume is more than 80 milliliter per meter square on the cardiac MRI. Multiple studies have showed that it's still possible to normalize the RV with the pulmonary valve replacement if the preoperative right ventricular and diastolic volume is equal or less than 160 milliliter per meter square, or if the right ventricular and systolic volume is equal or less than 80 milliliter per meter square on cardiac MRI. That was great, Ryan. So we start off with a series of obstructive left-sided lesions. You reviewed for us the structural approach in dealing with that. But clearly, you're not done there, right? Then you led us to what's the follow-up for looking at right-sided valvular disease, the hemodynamic consequence uh, to the RV, and when to go after that. But again, you're not done there. You know what? This patient came to us with endocarditis. So how often is endocarditis in patients like this? Right. So the risk of infective endocarditis is a major concern in patients with congenital heart disease, whether unrepaired, palliated, or even corrected. So the overall incidence of endocarditis in adults with congenital heart disease is 11 per 100,000 person year, as compared to the general population with an incidence of 1.5 to 6 per 100,000 patient years. And interestingly, the increased survival of children with congenital heart disease and the use of conduit and prosthesis and corrective surgery may have contributed to the increasing incidence of infective endocarditis that we see nowadays. And I think just to add to that, one of our, our expert discussant, Dr. Ballantyne, whenever we do clinic with him, he really emphasizes how important it is to screen these patients for endocarditis at every visit, every time, because these people, he, he for example, had an interface with the healthcare system a month prior to the presentation when he had these sort of nonspecific symptoms, as well as fevers and chills, and which was sort of empirically treated. But any sort of prolonged illness in these patients should be further investigated because of the high incidence of, of endocarditis. 
Ryan, Anupama, Mohammed, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us today. This was a very valuable lesson. You really illustrated Schoen complex, the hemodynamic complications of managing that, and and then really highlighted the fact that endocarditis is a complication that's associated with congenital heart disease. And you walked us through that differential and really how your team saved this patient in a play-by-play fashion. Thank you so much for coming on Cardi Nerds. And it is just a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. Keep, Keep up the great work. So I'd like to bring in the ECPR segment of the program. And it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Ford Ballantyne III, would tell you to call him Ford. He's been in charge of our congenital clinic since the early 1990s, and he's actually a, a contemporary of Dr. Fauci who went to med school with. And he's a great mentor to all our fellows. He actually leads our curriculum. We actually consider him a friend. He's very close with us, former PD as well. Hi. My name is Ford Valentine. I'm very happy to discuss this very interesting case. This young man, as you know, had a Ross procedure. I think that's something we're all aware of, but we don't utilize it often enough. A uh, study in Jack this year of 2,444 patients showed that there was a 1% mortality with this procedure and that the freedom from reintervention at 15 years was 85% and 80% at 20 years. The reinterventions obviously involve pulmonary valve replacement, which can be done transcutaneously, and probably 10% or fewer of people have aortic insufficiency that eventually might have to be addressed. The pulmonic valve is obviously the weak link of the whole thing. And as I think all of you know, melody valves were initially used, and now more and more we're using sapien valves. Melody valves were thought to be a relatively low risk for endocarditis, but unfortunately have turned out to be probably relatively moderately high risk for endocarditis with incidence of 3% or more per year. And this probably correlates with bacteriologic studies that show greater adherence of bacteria to melody valves than to other prosthetic leaflets. The progression of this case is instructive. This young man was having some symptoms of fatigue and um, getting a little short of breath, and they were attributed to his hemodynamic problem of pulmonic stenosis. And in fact, he had endocarditis. And frequently we see patients who have endocarditis that is missed for quite a long period of time. And the common scenario that we see is that a patient will consult a provider who is not sure what is wrong, but decides to give the patient an antibiotic. And obviously that only prolongs the misery. So by the time we see the patients, uh, as in this case, they're quite ill. It turns out that people who have obstructive symptoms do significantly worse and are much more likely to require intervention than those who don't. So to me, the most important aspect of this whole case is the endocarditis, which was not picked up for quite a while. And we routinely ask our patients who come to adult congenital clinic what the symptoms of endocarditis are, and we routinely go over those and have them repeat them back each year. And it is surprising how from one year to the next, a fair percentage of people don't remember what the symptoms are. So we generally say to them, if you have unexplained fever for more than a couple of days, it should occur to you that you might have an infection on your prosthesis and you should get a hold of your primary care provider and remind them that you have a prosthetic valve and perhaps should have blood cultures. And I think an extension of this, which we don't do, but I think we should do, 
is that all these people should carry cards which sort of list the various procedures they've had and emphasize the importance of endocarditis when it's indicated. And they should show these cards to their providers who may not be aware of their past history, especially somebody who might be on call, who's just seeing patients in triage, who really doesn't have time to go back in the record and find out all the fine details. So again, I think being aware of endocarditis, reminding our patients of the symptoms can prevent a lot of unnecessary misery. You spilled your beer float on your lap. Sorry. <laughs> Gotta be careful next time. Yeah. <laughs> I knew this booze cruise was not a good idea. <laughs> it was the waves. What are you going to do? Totally worth it, though.